Even though Christmas is over, the message of Christmas remains throughout the year. And this morning, we're concluding our series, Home for Christmas, by looking at Jesus' final destination, which is when he returns to be with his Father in heaven. But I do want to point out really quickly what will be happening in 2015 as we begin the year. Next week, we'll be having our family meeting, and our pastor will be discussing what we plan to do as a church in 2015 and also looking back at the year that was and how God used us in our city and in our world. And then the week after that, starting on January 11th, we'll begin a new sermon series on the Apostles' Creed, one of the most famous creeds in the history of the church. Many churches today of all denominations still recite this on a weekly basis. And so we'll be taking the Apostles' Creed, breaking it down phrase by phrase, and unpacking what it means for us as believers in Christ. So as we get closer to 2015, keep in mind those two important Sundays coming up. We hope you'll be a part of that with us. But we can't end our Home for Christmas series without looking at Jesus' final destination. And in John chapter 14 today, we're going to be looking at his explanation to his disciples about where he's going. He's going to be with his Father in heaven. And the disciples don't quite understand that. They get confused, as they always seem to do. And we're going to unpack that this morning and see what word God has for us. If you will, take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 14 this morning as we read, starting in verse 1. It'll be on the screen as well. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many, many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. But Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Then Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus replied, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Pray that your spirit would speak to us now. Teach us, mold us, shape us to be more like you. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 
The disciples are extremely emotional at this point for three particular reasons we find here in John chapter 14. They're overcome with emotion. Number one, they they understand that Jesus will be leaving them permanently to go and die a gruesome death. And second, they were just revealed in John chapter 13 that a few of their own would in fact betray Jesus. We know of the most famous betrayer of all, Judas. But we also have, in the end of John 13, Jesus telling Peter, you also will deny me three times. So they're shaken up over this. But most importantly, the disciples are nervous and anxious because they realize that the leader that they have followed for three plus years, that they have left their families, their careers, their homes to follow, he's leaving them permanently. Imagine somebody that you know closely or somebody that you have followed closely for a long period of time going away and the anxiety you would feel. That's exactly how the disciples felt here in this passage. And Jesus is trying to explain to them as best he can where he is going. But he doesn't use the word heaven in this passage. He actually uses the term my father's house. He says, I'm going to my father's house. But this is clearly talking about Jesus' return to heaven to be with his father. And he promises the disciples two things very early in this passage. Number one, that he is preparing a place for them. What does Jesus mean by that? Preparing a place for them. He's not talking about getting their hotel room ready, fluffing their pillow, He is talking about the fact that he will, in fact, die on a cross. And by him dying on that cross, he is preparing a place for them to have access to God the Father in heaven. That's what he promises them. But he also promises something very else that's important. He tells them that even though I am dying, I will return. And this is a promise that all of us as believers have anticipated and joyfully waited for since Jesus coined these words. He says that he will return. Now let's, let's unpack the return of Christ real quick, okay? How many of you have ever been told in your lifetime, you can just slip up your hand or you can remain anonymous, whatever you want to do. How many of you have ever been told that, or somebody told you that they think Jesus will return in your lifetime? That's what I thought, okay. The disciples believed that Jesus would be returning in their lifetime. Paul wrote many of his letters under the impression that Christ probably would return in his lifetime. My parents grew up telling me, son, I really think Jesus is going to return at some point in your life. Many of you probably heard the same things from parents and grandparents. I will probably tell my son, you know, I think Jesus is going to return in your lifetime. I think we can all agree that we do not know when Jesus is coming back. But we don't have to use this as a source of disappointment or anxiety. Instead, it should be a source of comfort and a source of hope. Many pastors, many authors have made lots of money predicting when, in fact, Christ will return. I did some research this week and found, at least in my estimation, the next date of when somebody thinks Christ will return. Does anybody have a birthday in here on September 28th? If so, slip your hand up. September 28th, okay, nobody, you're safe. But on September 28th, 2015, is the next latest and greatest date for the return of Christ by a man named Mark Blitz, who runs a ministry in Washington State. I don't know anything about him other than 
he thinks that on September 28th, Christ will return because on that day we're also having a lunar eclipse and those must go together. (laughs) His prophecy is known as the Blue Moon Prophecy and if we are all still here on September 28th, we should all pack our bags and be ready for the return. No, the reality is none of us know when Christ is coming. People have predicted for many, many years that it's going to happen. We don't know when. The disciples didn't know when, but Jesus promised them that he, in fact, will return. Now, this means that we should keep a heavenly perspective, but we shouldn't allow the return of Christ or our heavenly destination to consume us. You see, God has all placed us here to do work, to glorify him, to serve him, to go out and proclaim the gospel. So in spite of us keeping our heavenly perspective this morning, keep in mind that there is work to be done. Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And he does that. And he will return one day. And we anxiously, joyfully wait that return. And as Jesus continues to talk to his disciples in this passage, he has a dialogue with two disciples, Thomas and Philip. Now, we know Thomas very well. He is the resident doubter, the skeptic of the group. Anytime that Thomas is mentioned in the gospel accounts, it's never in a positive light. I can just picture when Jesus says, oh, y'all know where I'm going. I can picture Peter and John and those guys nudging Thomas being like, why don't you ask him? You already don't believe everything he says anyways. Thomas is the doubter. So they look to Thomas and say, hey, do your thing. And so Thomas is the one that raises his hand and says, Jesus, We don't know what you're talking about. We have no idea where you're going. Thomas is the one that asked this question. And then I believe in John 14, 6, we have the most evangelistic words that Jesus ever coined. This is what he says in John 14, 6. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, for those of you that are English teachers or English majors in college, there is not a more significant use of the definite article in all of the New Testament than we find here in verse 6. It would have been very easy for John to just write, I am the way, truth, life. He could have written a way, a truth, a life, one of many. No, no, no. John, specifically in the Greek New Testament, repeats the the three times with each phrase, way, truth, life, not by accident. Embrace the definite article this morning. Understand its significance for this passage. The world that we live in today tells us that there are many ways to heaven. In fact, statistics are now showing that only one out of three evangelicals believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. For you mathematicians, that is 33.3% repeating. One out of three. That means that over two-thirds people that claim to be evangelicals, claim to be followers of Christ, in their mind think that there is possibly another way to have access to God the Father. I can't reconcile those statistics with what we find here in John chapter 14. It is not by accident that John repeats the definite article three times. 
It's crucial. It's important. It matters. Many people in the world today would say that that Christians are closed-minded and stubborn and not up-to-date with the current trends. They would look at this verse and say that we're exclusive, that we're arrogant. How could we know the way to the eternal life? I would say that it's biblical. And if we as followers of Christ claim that everything in this book is the foundation by which we live our lives, then this passage of Scripture is important. I would also argue that those that think it's exclusive, stubborn, narrow-minded, whatever it might be, Jesus is the most inclusive person in all of Scripture. He has the ability to jump social classes whenever he wants. In a first-century world where you stayed in your group and you never associated with those outside of it, Jesus blows this out of the water. He hangs out with religious elite, adulterers, prostitutes, beggars, poor people, tax collectors. Jesus is the farthest thing from an exclusive person. He includes everybody. And I think the problem with John 14, 6 here is not the message of it. It's the method by which we have communicated it to other people. You see, Jesus promoted love and acceptance and grace and truth. The message of John 14, 6 remains the same. The method by which we teach it and communicate it is vitally important for people to hear. I had the opportunity a few weeks ago to go to the Lambeth House. I don't think Miss Joyce is here today, but there's a, a few of us on staff that have been able to do uh, chapel there every other month, and so I was invited to do it, and I spoke in, from John chapter 14, and I had the fullest intentions of preaching the entire chapter. But when I got to John 14, 6, I stopped, and I felt like I needed to unpack what that meant to everybody there. And I came to the realization that young, middle-aged, senior adult, the message of John 14, 6 is crucially important to the message of Jesus and to Christianity. I'll tell you another thing about when I went to the Lambeth House that day. I was traveling down Canal. I turned right onto Carrollton. I made it in plenty of time, and about a week later, I got something in the mail. <laughs> Apparently, on Carrollton, well, when you turn right onto Carrollton from Canal, there's this line that you're supposed to stop at. And if you turn right on red without stopping at that line, you get a gift of $130 in the mail. What I didn't tell you is, when this came in the mail, it was my wife's vehicle. And one of the great things about my wife is that she loves me to death, but I've gotten a lot of camera tickets since I've lived here. I'm not proud of it, but I've gotten quite a few. So when this one came and it was Ashley's car, I rejoiced because it was her. I knew it was her. I've had seven or eight. Me and Bob Moore kind of have an argument on staff about who's got the most. He's got a lot, too. Um, but anyways... So it came in the mail, I was all excited, I was like, ha ha, you know, as much as you make fun of me, you finally got your camera ticket. Well, Ashley went back and did some investigating. It turns out that day we had switched vehicles. And so I was in her car that day, it was me. And then I hate to tell you this, but a few days later I got another one in the mail from my own vehicle. So it was a rough holiday season for us. Two camera tickets in the span of about four days. 
What does that have to do with John 14.6? It really doesn't have anything to do with John 14.6. Other than the fact that it's extremely important that we unpack this verse and that we explain to people that there are not multiple ways to God the Father. It is not arrogant. We don't mean it to step on anybody's toes. It is biblical. It is what we believe. And we care enough about people to communicate that to them. After Jesus has his dialogue with Thomas, he moves on to Philip. Now, Philip is a disciple that we don't hear much about. Usually, it's the inner circle of James and John and Peter. But here, Jesus has a very important dialogue with Philip about his relationship to God the Father. It shouldn't come as any surprise that Philip doesn't really understand what's happening. We as believers still get confused about the relationship between God and and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. The Trinity is something that in many ways is a mystery to us. Of course, we understand what it means, but it's it's confusing. It's, It's a concept that is difficult for us to grasp. And here, Jesus clearly articulates his relationship to God the Father. Now, when we look at the term Trinity, what you find is it is nowhere to be found in Scripture. You'll never find the term Trinity in Scripture. It was actually coined by a very, very early church father who later kind of went off the deep end and became a Montanist, and his name was Tertullian, and he coined the Latin term Trinitas. And he also is the one that gives us our earliest understanding of what the Trinity really is. It's three persons in one substance, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Some of the earliest church heresies were fought over an accurate understanding of what the Trinity was, an accurate understanding of who Jesus is. Some heresies said that Jesus was completely divine and not man. Others said he was man but not divine. One heresy said that Jesus didn't become divine until the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. And it was at that point that he became divine. All of those were deemed heretical. And in this passage, Jesus clearly teaches Philip and the other disciples his relationship to God the Father. And it's important that we understand what's happening here. You see, Philip desired to see God with his own eyes. He says, show me the Father, and that will be enough for me. Jesus responds and says, Philip, you've been with me this long, you still don't understand that if you're looking at me, you're seeing the Father in the flesh. You see, the great thing about what Jesus did in teaching his disciples this concept is that they didn't understand that every word, every movement, every action that Jesus takes is a result of the work of his Father in heaven. Jesus later goes on in the end of John 14, the second half, and we don't have time to look at it this morning, but a brief summary. He explains the Holy Spirit to his disciples. And he says, you know, when I leave here, I'm sending a helper, somebody that will guide you, direct you. And you know what Jesus says in John chapter 14? I never noticed this before until I read it this time. Jesus says, when I leave here, you will be able to do greater works because I will be reunited with the Father. That is a reason to celebrate the union of the Father and the Son this morning. Jesus says, when I leave, you will have the ability to do even greater things because I'm returning to my Father. How is that possible? Because when Jesus returned to the Father, 
He left his spirit for all of us. And because he has left his spirit, there is work to be done. There is work to be done in your family, at your office, in this church. Because the Holy Spirit is working in our lives, there is plenty of work to do. Currently, there is over 7,000 people groups that have never heard the message of Jesus Christ. Not 7,000 people, 7,000 people groups. That means there are people all around this world that have never heard of the name Jesus, ever. I had the privilege in 2009 to go to Peru. My wife has been there a few times and worked with an orphanage. She has some friends that run an orphanage down there. I went with a different group. I always wanted to go. The opportunity arose for me to go, and so we flew into Lima, Peru, and then took another local plane to Iquitos, which is a town along the Amazon River. We hopped on a river boat and took it about three or four miles down the Amazon River, and we spent eight days there living on the boat, waking up every morning, getting into smaller boats, and going into these villages and sharing the gospel with the people at the villages. We did this every morning for eight days. Now, they spoke Spanish. I'm not that intelligent, so I don't. We each had our own translator, and we actually used an Evangel cube, which, as I mentioned in the early service, any of our children that complete our New Believers class actually get this cube when they complete their class, and it's a way that you can show the story of Jesus through visuals. So that's what we had. We had our translator, and we had this cube, and of course, we had our Bibles. I was 24 at the time, it's the first time in my life that I'd ever been to a place that when I explained to them who Jesus was, they had never heard his name. Not that they didn't understand the story, not that they got some of the details mixed up, never heard the term Jesus. Now this is in Peru, not that far from here. I mean, it's a ways, but it's not like going across the world. Friends, 7,000 plus people groups have never heard of Jesus. May we never say to God, we don't know what you have for us to do. What's God's will for your life? That's it. Proclaim the message of Christ. And it's possible because of the union between Jesus and his Father because he left his spirit with us. Jesus concludes this particular passage by shifting the scene to talking about prayer. We should all be praying in the name of Jesus Christ this morning. Jesus says in the very last verse, I want to read it for you. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. As we move along in Scripture, we find in the book of Acts that God is working in a mighty way. The Holy Spirit is given to the believers. People are being saved by the thousands. This happens because the believers committed themselves to intense prayer. As we look throughout history, we look at some of the most famous revivals, the Great Awakening in both Europe and in America, Yes, there were some great preachers, but you know why God moved in those areas? Because people were on their knees before him, asking him to work and asking him to move in a mighty way. I have a friend of mine who many of you probably don't know his name, but you know what he's done. His name is Jeff, and for over 15 years he was responsible for writing 
uh, the VBS music that many of our kids sing every year. He no longer does that. Now he's just a musician that travels the world, shares the gospel, and plays with groups. One of the most heartfelt, genuine people I've ever met in my life. Every time I talk with him, he usually calls me on my birthday and sings me a cheesy birthday song. And I had a chance to talk with him a few days ago. And it's always about what God is doing, how God is working. Always. He's always got these incredible stories. And I always get off the phone with him, and I think to myself, I never have these incredible stories like Jeff has. Now, granted, his platform is a little bit larger than mine, but you know what the reality is? The man is an intense man of prayer. And if we want God to work in our church, in our city, in the nursing homes, in the prisons, with the homeless people that we minister to on a weekly basis, we've got to get on our knees in prayer. That's why over six weeks ago, here, give or take a few weeks, we gave you our CareEffect 30-day prayer guide that each day you can be praying for the different ministries. On the flip side, we gave you prayer requests for specific continents and specific regions of the world where the gospel is either not being taken or it has strongholds, things that are preventing it from growing. We need to be praying. Jesus tells his disciples here, pray in my name and it will be done. We need to be praying in the name of Jesus Christ. It is our power source. It is our lifeline to God the Father. My mom had texted me a couple of months ago, and my grandmother, her mother, had stayed overnight with us. She had had a little procedure done, and so she just stayed at my parents' house uh, so they can make sure she was okay. She texted me and said, I just walked in to check on my mom. She's 84 years old now. And she was on her knees in prayer, praying for all of you and praying for family and other things. At 84 years old, probably with achy knees, difficult to get down at that age. You see, my, my goal for 2015 and beyond is to wear out my knees in prayer. I don't stand before you as somebody who is a phenomenal prayer or has a great prayer life. I just confess to you that that's my goal. That's what I want to happen. That's what I want to happen for this church as we minister in our community to be people that pray in the name of Jesus Christ and that wear out our knees in prayer. Maybe even have knee replacement surgery one day because we wear out our knees in prayer. That's what Jesus tells his disciples to do. If you do anything in my name, I will do it. Will you bow your head with me this morning? God, thank you for challenging us with this text. Lord, so much to unpack, so much to meditate on. Pray that your spirit would move in our hearts, in our minds. God, we want to be used by you. We want a mighty movement of God in this city and in this world. Help us to get on our knees before you and humble ourselves 
God, you want to work, you want to move. Just pray that we would get out of the way and let you do that. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your word, what it means to us, how it guides and directs our lives. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.